Thank you for all your appreciation. I appreciate the, your appreciation. <laughs> this morning we're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 13, verses 2 through 4. Um, I've entitled this, well, this is the Beast of the Sea, part 2. Two weeks ago we did that, part 1, and we're actually going to have a part 3 of that. And, uh, and even though today we're going to focus on 2 through 4, I'm going to start in verse 1 to get kind of a context and a running start at this. So, Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, hear now the word of God. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, on his heads a blasphemous name. Now the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Thus far, the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray as we look especially at this symbolic language that is truly depicting uh, the reality that this early church experienced and even by extension those things that we as Christians must deal with, contend with, recognizing their influence not only in the culture in which we live, but the culture's influence in the church. We do pray that that would be reversed. We pray that, the, in fact, your word would influence your people and your people would have a great influence upon the world in which we live. So help us to be strong in this and help us to be wise as we examine what these things in this passage of Scripture that we have just read actually mean to your glory and to the strengthening and encouragement of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I was in my study preparing yet another sermon on this portion of the Revelation, I could not help but muse on the words of Voltaire, um, of whom I'm not a fan, by the way, just in case you were wondering. Though Voltaire predated Karl Marx, another person of whom I'm not a fan, by over a hundred years, he got a whole century, Voltaire, before, before Marx. A statement that Voltaire made was later assigned to Marx. And this was the statement. Voltaire referred derisively to the breed of men who cannot run their own families and therefore retreat to their attics so that from there they can run the whole world. Marx seemed to fit this pattern. If you know anything about Karl Marx, his life was a mess, but he's probably had as much influence in the last 150 years as any person who's walked this planet. Well, I pray as I look at this that neither I nor any of us will fit that pattern, the pattern of kind of going, look, I want to change the world, but I can't seem to manage my own life. As I, I heard one military leader going, if you really want to change the world, what you really need to do is get up and make your bed. Manage your own life well before you go out trying to change the world. 
See, the revelation, the danger here a little bit is that the revelation is so macrocosmic that it's possible that we're going to walk out of here being like world changers and not focus upon those things that are more microcosmic within the revelation, i.e. the blood of Christ and the way that our very lives are to be sanctified and how we are to live. It is this type of vulnerability, I think, that the Apostle Paul is addressing when he gives his instructions on the criteria for elders. In 1 Timothy 3.5, he says, talking about you know, what type of person should be an elder, somebody who can manage his own house. He says, for if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? So, you know, before you get in a pulpit, before you go to a session meeting, before you go, you know, we're going to have a ministry that's going to be cosmic changing, you've got to just make sure that your wife and your children are loved and, and cared for. So we need to have that focus upon that which is so small and minute and individual and precious. At the same time, I think, there's a problem on the other side of the pole, especially in the current Reformed community of which we're part. I think we have this kind of lack of momentum due to this intentional extraction from this idea of being a culturally ameliorating force, this idea that we should have a positive effect upon the world as if there's no call in Scripture for Christians to make the world a better place. It's almost as if um, we're we're viewing that as as just not part of the plan. It's not part of the program. That that venture of making the world a better place is often so de-emphasized to the point where I've heard it just mocked. I I was listening to a Christian radio show where they were mocking this idea of Christianizing the world. Oh, we're going to Christianize the world, as if it's some ridiculous thing to Christianize the world. Well, let me tell you your alternative is, the alternative is to demonize the world. You're going to go one direction or the other. I would uh, advise, I, I posted this week this wonderful interview with Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, who is a uh, former lesbian uh, academic who apparently had 500 meals with some Reformed pastor and his wife, came to faith, and his, her life has completely you know, turned around. And it was, it's an amazing interview. She's just a brilliant, brilliant woman. And I would have you listen to that interview. Uh, it's on Ligonier. And what's funny about that interview is there, she's there, and there's another pastor. And I don't even know why the pastor is part of the interview. There's one guy interviewing her and, and this pastor, and he, he's fine. But he did make this comment in this interview. He's like, well, I'm not really interested in changing the world. You know, I'm just interested in the church. And, and it's funny because uh, Dr. Butterfield, she wasn't going to have it. I mean, she was very nice about it. And she, but she almost interrupted, may I say something here? And she's like, people need to know that Jesus is king. And, he's the, and I'm like, amen, sister. The church, say these folks who want to de-emphasize the fact that it's the responsibility of Christians 
to make the world a better place. They want to get together every Lord's Day. And you, I mean, this is my community, so I'm, it's near and dear to my heart, right? That we get together every Lord's Day and hear that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And to that I say, amen. Truly, the gospel must always be front and center in terms of, I mean, even the way you design churches, you know, where you have the communion up front, you have the pulpit, you know, we used to have a big Bible back here, you know, it's kind of like you walk in and you're like going, that's what this church is focused upon. As we've noted, I think, many times in this series through Revelation, that apart from the blood of the Lamb, apart from the blood of Christ, Revelation is a dead book written for dead people in a dying world. But that's not what the Revelation is. The Revelation is a book of great victory because of the blood of Christ. So we can't ever set that aside. Yet, Revelation, and not just Revelation, but all of Scripture, does not merely contain the gospel. The Bible contains the law in the gospel. Now, by the gospel, I'm talking about the fact that God so loved us that he sent his son to die for us, to redeem us, to ransom, to pay the price that we could not pay. But the Bible also contains the law. There is very much a how should we then live in terms of the components of Scripture. We're not just to get here and come here every Lord's Day and be happy that we're going to heaven. We're, We're given also marching orders. You know, the Apostle Paul, interestingly enough, in many of his epistles, you'll see it this kind of unfold this way, very early in his epistles, whether it's Romans for 11 chapters, and then chapter 12, he changes gears. His shorter epistles, it happens obviously more early. For, for half of his epistle, he'll tell you who you are in Christ. So that we can't lose sight of that. He will speak of the grace of God and the fact that we've been adopted, we belong to him. We've been ransomed. The riches of heaven belong to us. But then about halfway through, there's this big therefore. Therefore, live in a manner consistent with who you've been called. We, to, to use biblical terms here, we see in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called. See, for, for three chapters, he's been telling you what the calling is. Now he's saying, now you've got to put a little shoe leather to your Christian life. Philippians 1.27 Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. There's a way that we are called to live. As an undergraduate, I remember learning for the first time this great conflict between medical doctors and nutritionists. You know, it'd be probably somebody other than a nutritionist today, maybe still a nutritionist. But I remember the nutritionists in the classes I took were critical of the medical field because they did not so much, I mean, they treated the illnesses, but they didn't help prevent it. So the nutritionist is going, well, you're there to give pills, 
but we're here to keep you from getting sick in the first place. So that was the argument the nutritionist was giving. The doctors would kind of retaliate by saying there's not enough granola in the world to get rid of that tumor. So you had this battle, and of course, they're kind of both right, right? We should eat well, we should exercise, we should take care of ourselves, the nutritionist. But if you get sick, go to the doctor. Now, I bring that up because we, we come and we recognize, if I can use it kind of a symbolically or metaphorically, the sickness of sin, right? And we come to Christ. But at the same time, like the nutritionist, we should be seeking to create an environment in a world where, not, where we're not just continually bombarded with that sin. There needs to be this understanding that there are certain things taking place in this world that our children are exposed to, that we're exposed to, that shouldn't even be around. The world needs to be changed. Revelation 13 is a chapter that instructs us how to interact with an intensely dark society. We will learn in this chapter that we should always approach this battle undergirded with the gospel of grace. We don't leave the gospel to do battle. We live our lives in light of the gospel. Yet, these saints in these seven churches, through their perseverance, would not leave the world the same way they found it. And neither should we. Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. Now we'll do a little brief review before we get into verse 2. This beast was briefly alluded to in chapter 11, verse 7. But in this portion of the Revelation, the beast becomes the predominant figure. Now, in our last meeting, we focused on verse 1 of chapter 13, where we learned a little bit about this beast. So just quick review. The beast rising up out of the sea. So if you're in Asia Minor, and you're looking at the sea, you're looking toward Rome, the Roman Empire. I think for this and many other reasons that I think will become apparent, the beast is to be identified with the Roman Empire. That it has seven heads, and we talked about this more in detail last week, means that it's hard to kill. That it has ten horns means that it's very powerful, and the fact that it's got crowns on the horns rather than on the head means that It's going to rule by might rather than by wisdom or goodness or love. And the fact also that it has crowns indicates to us that it is some legitimate authority figure, which obviously the Caesars were legitimate authority figures. Finally, the blasphemous name on his heads reveals its intention of supplanting and utterly displacing the triune God in terms of its rule. We could talk all about tolerance and what have you, but the nature of ungodliness is not to 
peacefully coexist with godliness. The nature of ungodliness is to remove godliness. We'll get into more of that, not this morning, but in some of the sermons to come. But we should know this, that the Caesars, who would be the individual rulers of that beast, would not view themselves as public servants. Matter of fact, the idea of being a public servant probably never crossed their minds, as may be true of today's public servants, right? I mean, it's such an interesting term. I feel like, you know, our public servants have become self-serving celebrities. But nonetheless, they're called to be public servants. Actually, more specifically, they're called to be ministers. I mean, in Romans 13, they are called ministers. I mean, and some nations still call that, right? That they're prime minister. I mean, that's not just some kind of catchy way of saying president. They are to be Christ's ministers in that capacity. But the Roman Caesars were not going to be Christ's ministers. They were not going to be public servants. They engaged in unabashed self-deification that they assigned to themselves godhood. That the terms, the very terms used to describe them were terms that would be used to describe a deity, to describe God himself. So that is what's happening here in verse 1. So let us be cautioned. Let us be cautioned when we see people in positions of power, political or otherwise, assigning authority to themselves that rightly belongs only to God. I mean, we see that pretty routinely these days. People who are deciding when life begins and when life it's okay for life to end and what have you. These are, these are decisions that are to be made by God. And yet, if, we, if you remove God, somebody's got to take over. Why not me? I'll decide when you're going to live, when you're going to die. I'll decide if you're a human or not. Not me, I'm just saying. Not literally me, but I'm saying that about the way people function. You see, it's here where Revelation 13 helps us develop the boundaries for Romans 13. Romans 13, this idea that we are to be deferential to the authorities on this earth that God has established is not just a blanket statement that every last single thing that a person who's in a position of legitimate authority says that you must do. You've got to understand, number one, is what they're telling you to do contrary to Scripture? You also have to understand, is that does their authority actually extend to that which whether they're saying, whether, it's a, whether or not it's contrary to Scripture or not? Uh, we have an elder board in this church. They are an authority figure in the lives of the members of this church. But, it, but, but if the elders come up to you and say, look it, you need to start wearing a green shirt to work. You could rightly say, I don't really think that's your jurisdiction. You've got to understand the jurisdiction as well as whether or not what they're telling you to do is unbiblical. Well, what we see in Revelation 13 isn't the opposite 
of Romans 13. There, this is not a contradiction. What Revelation 13 is helping us do is understand the boundaries of that deferential disposition we are to have toward authority figures. Revelation 13 is going to be a chapter of non-compliance when we get right down to it. It's going to be a chapter of refuse the mark. And, you know, we'll get to that when we get to that, but I, I feel like I'm going to have to undo a lot of damage in today's contemporary sensational views of what that mark actually is. Because I don't think, you know, as I've said many times, the, ro- the road to hell is not a cliff. And this idea of the mark is not just one tattoo or one stamp. It's a direction that a culture is taking. And we need to be wise to that direction. Those receiving this letter are going to be called to some level of civil disobedience, non-compliance. A non-compliance that is going to cost them many of their lives. And all of this, these saints should not enter these trials, and I think this extends to any of us going through trials, as if things are now out of control, as if God has kind of left his post. Do you ever get that feeling? Things are, it's madness. You know, you, you hear these people will say, well, you know, if, if God is actually currently king, he doesn't seem to be doing such a great job with all of this darkness that is prevailing. And and I think John is writing this with the awareness that the people receiving this letter might think, wow, where is God in all of the difficulty we're about to embark upon? But we should not think, no matter how difficult things are, no matter how hard it is, no matter how random things might seem, that God has somehow left his post or that God has not somehow ordained whatsoever comes to pass. We need to ever be reminded of the words of our Savior that the sparrow doesn't fall to the ground apart from the will of my Father. I mean, the Scriptures are picking the most minute thing imaginable to say that God's in charge of every last single thing. Is there a fly flying around in the room? Well, we... There is there's simply not, as R.C. Sproul would say, one maverick molecule in the universe. If there's one maverick molecule in the universe, then God is not God. That's the thinking that I think the writer, John, is trying to make sure does not capture them, like things are out of control. Matter of fact, Peter will build upon that in 1 Peter 4.12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. I mean, obviously, why is he writing that? Because things are going to get tough. But they shouldn't think it's odd that things are going to get difficult. Now, the next word, verse, the next words penned by, by John, I think, should be awe-inspiring, not only to those who received the letter initially, but to us as well. Verses two, verse 2. Now the beast, which I saw, was like a leopard. His feet were like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. The dragon gave him his power, his throne, 
and great authority. All right, so, you know, you might ask, Pastor Paul, why would such an ominous description of the enemy, that all, of all that is good, you know, this beast, this enemy that is intent on snuffing out the church, why is that awe-inspiring? Why is it good news to hear about this lion, bear, you know, leopard, beast that is intent on killing Christians? No doubt it would have required those who are more skilled in the Old Testament, which John surely would have been, to help the novice. But John is referencing something here written centuries before by Daniel. You see, in reverse order of John, Daniel, who's writing five, six hundred years before this, records his vision of these exact beasts, a lion, a bear, and a leopard. You see, he does it backward. Daniel has four beasts in his vision. John combines them into one aggregate beast. The point here is, and I know many of you feel this way, you've, you've verbalized it. We can easily grow discouraged when we observe the power and the prosperity and the influence of the wicked. Especially, especially when that includes the abuse and the oppression of those who are most vulnerable in our society. I mean, when I, when I witness how our young, and I, just, I say young, but not just young, some older as well, people who are swayed by current sexual, economic, political, and artistic trends, it can just, I know for me, it fosters an indignation in my soul. Just the other night, I was taking, you know, I coached my son's volleyball team, and I was walking in over there at Redondo High, and there was a mom walking out with her preteen daughter, and I just overheard some of this conversation. And the mom is explaining to her little girl about a woman who was born with a Y chromosome. She's like, well, because she was born with a Y chromosome. Now, I think the little girl, as I'm looking, the little girl knew enough about genetics to know that that's confusing because that's what makes you a woman. I mean, you get two X's, right? You're a woman. You get the X and the Y. What are you? You're a man. But this, he's, she's like, this woman was born with a Y. And the little girl's kind of like, I feel, I'm like, we're working hard to confuse our kids. I mean, we... we, we we are, we are kind of raising a culture where it's, it's, we're being bombarded. And that's one of the reasons why I find it discouraging and upsetting, and actually I get a little indignant when the church goes, well, you know, let the world do what the world's going to do. No. Because it's, it's coming into the church. It's going to go one way or the other. 
Well, John's referencing Daniel. And his readers needed to know that God has not lost control of the situation. What were, what's happening there during the time of John was anticipated hundreds of years earlier by Daniel. And that's why I chose for the call to worship today that it is God who removes kings and establishes kings. It is God who will put people in authority, and it is God who will remove people from positions of authority. And what we're going to learn, not this morning, but you know, later in verse 5, is the temporary nature of that authority. They got three and a half years, and then they're done. Now, I don't think we need to spend a lot of time excavating the symbolism of these beasts, clearly they describe, you know, the, the leopard and the bear and the lion. Clearly they describe, you know, swiftness and power and overwhelming intimidation. The dragon, just in case you don't know, is the devil and he is seeking to establish by way of human potentate, by way of human authority, he is seeking to establish that which rightly belongs to Christ. Power, throne, authority. I mean, I hope that sounds familiar to you because we see those words, if not exactly, in the Great Commission. We call it the Great Commission. But the devil wants the great insurrection. It's the great infringement. It's a battle. I mean, I, I was listening to a sermon I was quite enjoying. I didn't hear the whole thing. I was quite, an enjoy, quite enjoying whoever this guy was. I don't know who the pastor was. He was talking about how the church needs to be built right next to the gates of hell. Because the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We are, we are to take an offensive posture. But I feel like right now, we think that we just want to keep our gates from being crushed by hell itself. No, it's the opposite direction. It's the gates of hell that will not stand against the advancing kingdom of Christ. Even though I feel like we live in terms of the vicissitudes of human history in a place where we've kind of given ground. And we can't do that. We, we need to take that ground back. I mean, you might go, well, how do you do that? I mean, you do that by being loving and good and wise and evangelistic. and I mean, the way to do it is to also not allow yourself to be the double-minded man, the double-minded woman. The, the lordship of Christ must prevail in every category of your life. You don't become a different person when you walk out these doors on Sunday morning. You don't become a different person when you go to work. You don't become a different person when you parent. You don't become a different person when you educate. And you don't become a different person when you vote. You're, you are the same person with the same Lord. And if this world convinces you to somehow go, well, look, you need to leave your religion in that little cubicle, then they're, they're trying to get you to be a hypocrite. And we ought not to be that. Now, we've got to stop here just for a second. Because there's something we need to iron out. 
And for some of you, you're going to be like, this isn't going to matter until you get into a conversation with your Christian friends who don't agree with you. And then you're going to go, where are my notes, you know? So let me just, let me just kind of let you know in advance. Because, you know, we've spoken in Daniel of those of three beasts, right? The mountain, the, the, the lion, the bear, and the, the leopard. But there is a fourth in Daniel. And this fourth beast in Daniel, and just so you understand the connection between Daniel and Revelation, I mean, if you're in seminary and you're taking a class on eschatology, you're taking a class on end times, it'll often be called Daniel Revelation because those two books contain very much the same message. So we have this other beast in Daniel, which also, by the way, has ten horns. I think the the comparison here should be obvious. Now, let's go back to Daniel a little bit. One of the recurring and predominant themes in Daniel is that of four kingdoms. We see that in chapter 2 and chapter 7. There's these four, you know, through through, through dreams and visions, we have these four kingdoms. And these four kingdoms precede the coming of Christ. Right? So this is in the Old Testament. This is, again, written hundreds of years before Jesus is even born. And it is pretty much universally agreed that those four kingdoms are Babylon, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Roman Empire. Those are, everybody, whoever you read, in any category at all of end times, everybody's going to agree that those are the four kingdoms that precede the coming of Christ. And it is during the fourth kingdom that we read that there will be a stone made without hands that will fall upon those kingdoms and become a mountain and then fill the whole earth. Now, it is also universally agreed that that stone is who? Who do you think? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's the correct Sunday school answer. Jesus. Everybody agrees in that. But what is, I'm going to, I have to say, I'm going to use the word shocking here, is how an interpretation of this passage in recent years fails to recognize what I'm going to say is obvious. And that is that Jesus was born during the Roman Empire. (laughs) Well, right? I mean, you're like, what's so shocking about that? It shouldn't be shocking. What we read in Daniel is that he's born and he establishes his kingdom. Oh, now all of a sudden, everybody's going to disagree. There is a method of reading the Bible called and I can't get into the details of this, it's called dispensationalism. And that interprets the teaching of Daniel differently. I have a quote. At his return, that is, at his second coming, he will subjugate all kingdoms to himself, talking about Christ, thus bringing them to an end, Then he will rule forever in the millennium and in the eternal state. 
All right, so you may, I don't know if you're catching what's going on here. There's nothing in Daniel 2, there's nothing in Daniel 7, and there's nothing in Revelation 13 that speaks of this happening at the second coming. This is an example of a commitment to a system that is forcing people to read into the Bible something the Bible just doesn't say. There's nothing in this passage. Now, don't get me wrong. Do I believe in a second coming? A literal, physical second coming? Yes. Judgment day. The final resurrection. But this is not talking about that. This is talking about during the Roman Empire, the stone, Jesus, comes, establishes his kingdom, and then becomes a mountain and begins to cover the whole earth. So Now, I'm going to push this a little further because... I feel a responsibility to kind of, I don't want this to become a seminary class, but I feel a responsibility to instruct you on this. Because so odd is this system, and I, did, and I went to a seminary that taught this, so I'm fully versed in it, I get it. And I believe they're Christians, don't get me wrong, and they have their Bibles open, and they're good, godly, honorable professors, But they've been influenced, and I I listen to this, and I've been in the classes and asked the questions, and I'm like, I don't get how you're arriving at this conclusion. It just seems so odd. And so odd is this Bible interpretation that instead of simply acknowledging the birth of Christ during the Roman Empire, there has to be a new, revived Roman Empire. You, You literally have to create a new empire. It was, in the past, associated with the European common market. Uh, you know, the ten commonwealth of nations. Oh, because it has ten toes, you know. And I'm like, why can't we just acknowledge there was a place called Rome? And Jesus was, why do we have to create a new empire? Kind of out of thin air in order to make our Bible work. Gary DeMar puts it this way in his His book, Last Day is Madness. He said, according to Hal Lindsey, Dave Hunt, John F. Walvoord, and many others who write on prophecy, this, and they call this, you know, this European Commonwealth, this United States of Europe, was that some effort to get America involved in Revelation, I guess. This United States of Europe constitutes a revived Roman Empire. Can can you tell what an isogetic imposition this is upon the text? Can you see this yourself? Can you see that is not, I mean, you can go home and read Daniel if you'd like. You're not going to see anything about a revived Roman Empire. You're not going to see the United States of Europe or anything like that. What you're going to see, you know, and what's odd about this, and it's kind of ironic, is because the people hold this view, they go, well, we take the Bible literally, it's most natural reading. I'm like, the most natural reading is that Jesus was born during the Roman Empire and started his kingdom. The Roman Empire no longer exists, and his kingdom continues. Now, we can't stay here any longer. I'm going to move on. But I want to peel back to Daniel now, and this fourth beast clearly being Rome the Roman Empire that existed 2,000 years ago. 
I don't know about you, but I'm one of those people who really lament the fact that John Calvin never wrote a commentary on the Revelation. Now, I'm mentioning John Calvin here because I know there are people who think that I personally am somewhat novel in my approach to eschatology. I am not novel in my approach to eschatology. If this were 300 years ago, I would just be boilerplate, another kind of Puritan guy kind of talking about the fact that the kingdom has come and it should be moving powerfully forward. But nowadays, it's like, what? What do you believe? You think the world's going to become a better place? What's wrong with you? And you're thinking, boy, you really aren't. You really don't believe the Bible, do you? Because it's, it's all going to get really bad, according to the Bible. Well, Calvin didn't write a commentary on the Revelation, but he did write one on Daniel. Right, and again, I'm not assigning canonicity to John Calvin. All right? He's not the Apostle John. He's John Calvin. But at the same time, he's probably the best biblical exegete in the history of the church since the canon closed. My humble opinion. And not only just my humble opinion, but pretty much the humble opinion of almost every pastor who's ever read him. Now, get this to make this connection. As I think we've established, Daniel 7 and Revelation 13 are undeniably speaking of the same thing, right? The beast with the ten horns. Here's Calvin's comment on the fourth beast in Daniel. Calvin writes, I have no doubt that in this vision, the prophet was shown the figure of the Roman Empire. Now, it's starting to lose its shock value because you're all kind of going, well, seems, I hope you're all going, seems obvious. And I've got a footnote here uh, kind of indicating that virtually uh, every scholar in the early church also believed that it was the Roman Empire and that it's referring to the Caesars as well. Why am I harping on this? I harp on this due, I think, to the general unhealthy disposition among Christians today that Christ still has work to do work he will complete in his second coming. I, I felt that way myself. I'm like, boy, when he comes again, he's going to sort things out. It's a mess, but he's going to come and fix it. And I didn't, at the time, realize what an insult that was to the cross. Where, where, where my understanding of the cross was, these wonderful things that the Bible says are going to happen in the world simply can't happen as a result of the victory of the cross. Jesus needs to come and do more stuff. Let me tell you, when Jesus comes, he's not doing more stuff. When he comes again, that second coming, it's going to be judgment day. It's not him coming going, you know what, I left some things undone. Here, let me finish you know, this business that I should have taken care of. The stone, friends, has come. We're not waiting for the stone to come. The stone has come and is currently filling the whole earth. I mean, I, was, I always like to read people who disagree with me, and one guy said, well, it can't be, you know, it can't be the stone, can't be the past, because the stone... Hits and then immediately becomes a mountain. And that's not the way, 
you know, the kingdom grows, you know, it's, uh, it's you know, this gradual thing. And I'm like, well, wait a minute. A mountain doesn't hit the image. A stone hits the image. And then does what? Becomes a mountain. You know how many images there are in Scripture that describe the kingdom of God just that way? Old Testament and New Testament. You know, this little, little stream coming out of the temple. It's just a little, little stream you could walk across, and then all of a sudden it becomes kind of a thicker river, and then, it's a, then eventually it becomes an impassable deluge, right, in Ezekiel. And how about the kingdom parables, right? Starts like, what, a mustard seed, and then becomes large enough that all the birds, leaven like permeates the whole loaf, on and on and on, over and against the position that when Jesus comes again, he's going to cataclysmically change the world. The Bible teaches over and over and over again that it's going to gradually take place. And it gradually takes place by the gospel going forth and by God's people, in fact, being faithful. We have benefited as a result of the faithfulness of those who've gone before us. And we're called to do that. And we're called to do that for the next generation. We've got to quit thinking so short-term. The, the Christian faith has become this um, product, you know, where I'm going to walk out of here today and things are going to be better for me today than they were yesterday. You know what? They might not. You think that's the way it was at, at Sardis and at, at Smyrna? You think they walked out going, well, I'm going to, you know, my, my pastor is my life coach and things are going to be better at work now that I've gone to church. No, that's not the way it works. We need to be able to think long-term. We need to be able to think less selfishly about our current situation and continue to plant the seeds for the future. You know, there's this wonderful story about the dining commons at Oxford where the guy who built it, I think it was about in 1400 or something like that, he built this, or 1200, he built the dining commons at Oxford in Cambridge, and, and then he had this big beam going across, you know, and he built this thing, and he had this big giant beam going across this huge, beautiful dining commons. And then he went out about 100 yards or a couple hundred yards away from the building, and he planted a tree of the same kind of wood that was, beam was made of, because he figured that beam's going to last about 400 years, and that tree in about 400 years will be about right. And you can chop that tree down, and you can get a beam from that tree and replace this beam in 400 years. As opposed to what we have people doing today. I mean, I have personal friends who are so convinced that we're at the end of the world that they canceled their, their health insurance, their life insurance, they, they moved to the mountains, and they quit brushing their teeth. <laughs> like short-term thinking. We've got, to, we've got to recognize that we are also planting seeds for the far future. I think it's a really unhealthy thing and also, here's something else, when you get into the Daniel passage. When you get into this Daniel passage that's talking about these beasts and this kingdom and all this stuff, that culminates with the reference to the ascension. I'm going to read, I'm going to put a passage up here for you to take a look at. And I want you to just use your own ability to exegete the passage and draw the conclusion that the passage seems to be saying. Because, because the passage is popularly now referred to as the second coming. People are like, oh, this is the second coming. And I'm kind of going, no, this is not the second coming. Not just me, but historically, 
This is the ascension. This is Jesus ascending to the Father where he is seated at his right hand and begins to rule and reign as the messianic king. Now, let's put it up there and we'll see what you think it is, just so you're not being spoon-fed. Now, again, this is in Daniel 7, so we've already talked about the four kingdoms, right? And where does it go? I saw in night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Well, you know who that is, right? Son of man. It's the, it's the, the term Jesus used more than any other term in the Bible to refer to himself. One like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. Okay, is he coming from the ancient of days or is he going to the ancient of days? Is he, is he going up or is he coming down? And he's going up. I was literally in a class in my dispensational seminary, and I'm like going, am I, maybe I don't understand Hebrew well enough, but it seems like he's going up and not coming down. And they're like, well, that'll become more clear to you when we get to Revelation. And I have to say, I'm not making this up. We got to Revelation, and I made the same argument. I go, this doesn't seem like the second coming. This seems like the first coming. And they're like, well, we learned in Daniel that it was the... I'm like, no. We need to be discerning. And what happened? And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. I mean, the Apostle Paul says on more than one occasion that Jesus has ascended, right, above all ruler and power and principalities and dominion. This is talking about the ascension of Christ to the right hand of the Father. Friends, the king has come, and he has ascended to the right hand of the Father. His kingdom has been established. The millennial reign of Christ has begun. And I don't think, going back to this idea that the church should not have some type of positive effect upon the world, I don't think that it's a stretch to conclude that when we read that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him, that that will produce good in the world. I mean, that's the prophecy, right? He's raised that all people and languages and tongues should what? You know, believe, have faith in him, and then go cloister themselves in their church and not do anything? No, they serve him. We serve him in every single capacity. All right, we'll move on. I'm running out of time here. Oh, man. (sighs) Okay, wait a minute. Oh, my goodness gracious. (laughs) Okay, all right. Okay, take a deep breath here just for a second. I'm going to have to go into... If anybody needs to use the restroom. (laughs) This is where, you know, if we didn't engage in the regulative principle, it'd be like, take a moment, say hi to your neighbor, stretch your legs... Man, oh man, I don't know what's wrong with. Yeah. All right, I'm going to go a little fast here. Verses 3 and 4. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. 
And all the world marveled and followed the beast, so they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who is able to make war with him? I, um, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't feel like I can do justice to what I want to say here. So what I want to do right now is, and I'm going to, I'll build on this next week, but I want to go... I want us to go to what I think the point here is that we weren't really going to get to anyway that's found in verse 10. And that is where he says, here is the perseverance and the faith of the saints. And I want to finish with that thought. You know, this this idea of the perseverance of the saints. We use terms like once saved, always saved or eternal security to kind of describe the idea that if you are in fact saved, you can't lose it. And I think that is technically accurate. But the biblical term has a little different flavor to it. The term you see in the Bible is point five of Calvinism, right? Of the tulip, the perseverance of the saints. The fact that you will remain faithful. The fact that your life will be marked by a lifelong recognition that you're in a battle. That your life will be marked by a lifelong recognition that Jesus is your Savior and a lifelong recognition that Jesus is, in fact, your Lord. You know, here's what concerns me. What concerns me isn't so much the fact And I look out in this church, and I know most everybody in this church, and I've sat through a lot of dark moments with a lot of you in this building. And it doesn't concern me so much, I mean, it it concerns me just emotionally, but in terms of your spiritual welfare, that you had a a glitch in your walk, that you had a moment of failure, a moment of darkness, a moment of, you know, a Peter moment where you denied your faith, does that, I mean, it does concern me, but that's not what really concerns me. You know what concerns me is when people disappear. When people go, you know what, I'm done. It's too hard. Or, you know what, I was promised things about the Christian faith that haven't happened. I'm going to try something else. You know, the Apostle Paul said a lot of very self-deprecating things, Right? I constantly do that, which I do not want to do. I'm not just the sinner. I'm a chief of sinners. But there was something he said that was not self-deprecating at the end of his life. And it wasn't because he was being boastful. It was because he recognized that as a true believer, he was being preserved by God himself. And that is my prayer for every one of you. And that's when he said... I have kept the faith. I have finished the race. That's that's what we're signing up for. We're not signing up to continually walk this victorious Christian life. What we're signing up for is the fact that God has saved us and we are to persevere in that faith. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize that history itself is not in the hands of that which is dark. You've created all things, Father, for your own purpose, even even that 
those who are evil, even those who are wicked, for that dark day. And help us, Father, be encouraged to know that that which appears to be painful and, and deliberately evil as it enters into our life is designed, Father, by you to sanctify us. If Jesus was perfected through suffering, should we expect anything other than, be, than to be perfected through suffering? Help us to ever remain faithful, to fight that good fight, and to ever walk in that faith that you've granted by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.